this conversation, you're in for a good one. Had an absolute pleasure to chop it up with Kelly Palmer, who is a licensed social worker and educator running for Waco City Council, District Number 4. Kelly is a third culture kid who lived in five countries and eight states before landing in Waco in 2013 to pursue her master's in social work from Bill University. When she's not working, you can typically find Kelly nose deep in a library book, volunteering with a local nonprofit, or on a walk around the neighborhood with her husband, Matthew. Tap in. All right, what's up, everybody? I'm back again with another episode of Campus Cuts. Um, today, I actually have one of my um, really special guests, somebody, an educator, a social work, um, a social activist, somebody that's actually in the trenches, somebody that's actually doing for the community, running for District 4 of the Waco City Council. Um, she is, um, just from like, from mutual friends and just seeing who she's about and who she's around, she's so, she's about the people. And she's about making sure to bring community and bringing people together and making sure that they know that they belong. Um, and she's all about making sure she's challenging the status quo. Miss Professor Kelly Palmer, welcome to the show, Campus Cuts. What, what? So happy to be here and in the house with you on an yeah. iconic Waco podcast. Oh man, I wouldn't even say it's a, uh, it's a, it's a Waco podcast. It's just a kid, a student that just wanted to was on a mission to let people's perspectives be heard and, um, you know, trying to combine both the Joe Rogan um, experience, but also, um, you know, LeBron James, the shop, his show, those two really influenced this. And I wanted um, people to continue to have, felt like their voices are. I'm not a journalist, y'all. I'm just an actor. I'm a kid who wants to act and but we're, doing, we're here. Waco needs it. The world needs it. Yeah, I'm so blessed. Okay, so, um, you know, I did your my little introduction of you. So, Miss Palmer, Professor Palmer, who are who who are you? What is your name, your occupation, um, and um, why are you here? Or yeah, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm Kelly Connolly Palmer. Um, I am a social worker and a social work professor at Baylor University, Diana R. Garland School of Social Work. Sick of social work. Um, and I'm running for city council because we have a city council that's made up of six people. Five of them are men in business or law. We need more women. We need more helping professionals. We need more activists. So I'm here to shake things up in the old boys club. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it feels like um, it's so crazy that, you know, you reached out to me and your, your campaign is coming up this time. Um, shout out. I just want to shout out Baylor Theater one time. Um, we're actually putting up a production called Sister Suffrages and um, about the suffrage mo a movement during the 1900s. Um, you guys should watch it. It's a quick plug, but also most importantly, it's so funny how still it's literally almost 20, um, no, 100 years, a whole century since, you know, women were allowed to vote, but they're still within these circumstances of like representation being weak especially in, in positions of, quote, no, no, I want to power, uh, influence and changing Absolutely. the community. So, um, but like, just even then, like, I really think, what is your, I mean, of course, you want to go deeper into who you are, whatever, but like, what is your campaign about? Like, who, what, why are you specifically doing that? And what does it mean to be a woman in leadership? 
So many things, so many great questions. Um, one of my campaign slogans is imagine a more beautiful Waco. And when I think of the world, word beauty, I really think of Shalom and everything being in rightness, everything being in alignment. And when I look out at Waco, there is so much that is good in our city. There is so much that is beautiful and is true and that is just. And there is also a really um, scary underbelly to Waco where there are systemic issues that have existed in our city for decades, if not hundreds of years, particularly along race, class, and gender lines um, that I want to see um, ameliorated. I want to see uh, really aggressively responded to on a city level. So as a social worker, I have friends that own three houses in Waco and that have been a part of the blossoming magnolia effect and have airbnbs and then i have friends that are getting by off of public assistance and i think getting to see people um, across socioeconomic perspective or across socioeconomic scales has given me an insight into the city but i think a lot of people don't often get to see we tend to run in pretty homogenous groups as humans whether it's along the church you go to your race your profession um how much money you make and as a social worker i kind of weed through a number of different parts of our community. And I think we need people um, that really know what is what it's like to live in Waco um, from a number of different perspectives. Right, right, right. And uh, man, oh, man, this is like, this is exactly what this, uh, I wanna talk about, this talk show is about. Um, man, because this first started because I was um, put into a position of, um, I was served as a bailiff student government. And okay. the government I was um, chosen to be. Director of Diversity and Inclusion. Come on. And yo, yo, I'm just gonna be candid, y'all. We're gonna be authentic, hot, open, and transparent. I Let's low do key, it. I low key felt that was, um, I was put there because I was safe. And it was like, low, low key, like, kind of like tokenism. Like, because oh, I mean, I go to, yo, I'm just gonna, hey, because guess what, guys? I get paid, be myself. So we get paid, be myself. We're gonna talk that talk. Let's um, do it. Come on, low, transparency. Low, That's what I'm here for. Oh, love everybody at Baylor, but at the same time, though, um, <clears throat> you know, of course, it just like, I, my my mission was to be able to go, my purpose was to go on listening tours. Um, and this listening tours, I was like, okay, how am I able to effectively allow people to be able to, like, I'm going to listen to them, but mm -hmm. the form of communication, the means of the communication is going to be diluted because I'm a third bridge. I'm a, I'm a playing a part and I can get lost in translation. And then, so a reason I was thinking, okay, how am I able to create an opportunity for people if they want to join in, if yeah. they want to listen, if they want to see, if they want to get a different perspective. Oh, boom, listening to a podcast that said anchor, let's do it, let's go. And I said, oh, this is great because now I can get each and every perspective that wants to be shared and about what's going on at Baylor and to create because um, I hate, I honestly hate the word diversity inclusion because those are just buzzwords. Yeah. And which I know what you are about down in your core is about equity, justice, and true representation. Come on. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. For the audience that's tuning in, we got five people live. Shout out to everybody that's live. Shout out to the five people y'all watching. Um, <laughs> I don't, like, see, this is the beauty of being an underdog because, you know, you can just go crazy. Um, 
What does equity and um, equity and inclusion justice mean for you, um, especially as an educator, um, especially in social work? I know that the big Baylor and the School of Social Work is completely different. So I wanted to get your point of view. Yeah, I think, I mean, when I think about the difference between equity versus diversity, I think about power, um, racism and classism and sexism and all of these things are ultimately about power and money. And so um, as a social worker, I want to see everybody brought to the table and everybody have equal voice at the table. And we know that that's not happening in our country. We know that's not happening in our city. We know that's not happening at Baylor. Um, Baylor, although it has a diverse student body, is a PWI. It is a predominantly white institution and whiteness is at play in such powerful ways on Baylor's campus, as is Christianity. Um, and so when I think about equity, I think about people having equal ownership and equal access to power and being able to leverage that power um, for the common good that, that um, takes into account everybody's perspective. So if when I think of just diversity, it's like, mm, here, have a seat at the table and we'll listen to you. But like we're still holding the power and we're kind of uh, giving you breadcrumbs, whereas um, equity is we're all building this table together. We all have equal ownership. We all um, have the bottom line decision making power in a way that doesn't always take place. Right, right, right. And you are. Man, you're definitely right about that. And I mean, like my personal experience going there. Um, I came from a very diverse background, a very diverse school that, you know, had almost each and every um, school, like every, almost each and every race and religion and class represented at my school. And then going and being dropped and plopped in Waco. I know I had a couple of my former teachers from high school that said, oh, you're going to Waco? Isn't that yeah. like NOLA? But I, all you heard from Baylor was like, oh, man, Baylor is amazing. It's great. And then after that, you know, you got a little bit of 20, uh, 2017, 2018. But you know the cases and uh, yeah, all the sexual assault, all, all the, the allegations, and um, they were like they were low key, but they were very worried. And uh, when I got there, I was like, man, it's very separated. Like <laughs> it's separated as heck. Yeah. And, like man, um, I didn't know where to belong. I didn't know how, and I was able to. I didn't know what to my space. I'm like, okay, I'm here. I was able to figure this out. How can I come in, and how am I able to? I don't want to say like dismantle, but how am I able to play a role? And that's what kind of led me to student government. But um, my question for you is, how did you even get to Baylor? Like, you know, you graduated with your master's, but how did that even happen? Like, what was that transition and how did you get there? Uh, Baylor, gosh, I, so I am a military kid. I've moved up around a ton. I did two years of college in California and then I did graduated from school in Boston and I knew I wanted to go straight from undergrad to grad school. My dad's in the air force and I would, uh, get access to GI bill benefits to pay for grad school. And so I was like, right. okay, I want to go to grad school. This is the way to pay for it. Um, social workers aren't making bank. And so <laughs> I definitely don't want to take out a bunch of student loans. And, uh, I applied to schools all over the country and, uh, Baylor was actually my safety school. I was really set on going to University of Michigan. Uh, it's the top social work school in the country, and they have a really strong international uh, development track, which is what I was really interested in at the time. And uh, one of the deans at Baylor called me up and was talking to me and really sold me on Baylor. And I just felt like at Baylor in the School of Social Work, I would be a person and not a number. And so I decided to move to Waco two weeks before classes started. So I moved. Uh, it snowed and blizzarded in Boston my senior year of college until May. I moved to Waco in July. Uh, I thought I had landed in the pit of hell because it was so hot. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was like, where am I? Like I had gone to a small private Christian school for undergrad, um, but Boston is definitely not a Christian city. And so landing in a very Christian city where you see people, I remember going to Common Grounds my first time and I saw people out with a Bible and I had like never seen anyone with a Bible at a coffee shop before. And so I was like, do you know Jesus? <laughs> They're like, yes. <laughs> right. So I had some uh, major culture shock initially landing on Baylor's campus. But yeah, I came here, did a nine-month program thinking I was going to be in and out of the city. And then like so many other Wacoans, I found that Waco really is such a unique space and fell fell in love with her. Here I am seven years later. Right, right. That's that's amazing. That's, that's so funny. That is so funny. So you identify as a believer, right? Yeah. All right. Awesome. Awesome. And um, yeah, I actually want to. I want you to talk about um, how is it? Because um, remember, you sent me your bio. Uh, your bio. You're you're a third culture kid because you mm-hmm. probably lived across and um, all that. So talk about that experience being able to live, moving from place to place all the time, and um, why that was important and vital for your growth and your development as a as a human being. Yeah. Oh, I mean. I think being a third culture kid and moving all over, one of the greatest gifts that taught me is that um, truth looks really different regionally, regionally in the United States, regionally across the world. And being a Christian and being a part of faith communities in um, Central East Africa and in Western Europe and on the East Coast and West Coast of the United States, I saw that all of these people um, love Jesus and revere the scriptures and yet interpret what it means to be a believer in radically different ways. And I think that was incredibly helpful, especially in this cultural moment that we're living in that's so polarized where everybody's convinced that like they have the truth. I've been able to see um, capital T truth interpreted in so many different ways. And having that be a part of my faith formation has really shaped also my political formation, how I view society at large. Um, people are doing the best. They, I believe that people are doing the best they can with what they know. Um, but we're, we're creatures of habit and we are creatures that are so shaped by our environment. So getting to be shaped by so many different environments, environments where people are predominantly Muslim, environments where people are predominantly agnostic, environments where people are predominantly uh, Southern Baptist. I've gotten to see the richness of so many different traditions and also some of the underbelly of that, of there are great things about every community on the planet and there are really hard things um, that exist. Right, right. And I really think that that is, that is so good. I think that what most people need to be able to have nowadays is just a viewpoint that people are having, are trying, or are really are doing the best that they can with what they have. Yeah. Um, it doesn't give you an excuse to be a scumbag. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think it just comes to the idea of the education, right? And um, what was one of those moments when you, well, like um, one of those pivotal moments in your life that you realized that you were that minority, but despite you being that minority, but you were embraced. And then also on a caveat to that, where am I um, a position where you're in a minority and that you were kind of discouraged and kind of um, pushed back against? I think um, one of the most pivotal moments along those lines. So I lived on uh, the Greek island of Lesbos in 2015, 2016, working with refugees from uh, Northern Africa and from the Middle East that were fleeing all sorts of um, oppression and violence. 
And uh, I'm a military kid. I grew up on military bases for all of middle school and high school. And so the war on terror um, was a really active and formative part of my childhood. And I didn't realize that I had um, embedded a lot of embedded Islamophobia in me, that I had a lot of fear of Muslims, that I had a lot of fear of the Middle East that was so shaped by growing up in a military community that was so shaped by being, I was in fifth grade when 9-11 happened. And to right. have, you know, most of my middle, all of middle school and high school shaped in this post 9-11 worldview had done a lot of um, pretty toxic um, embedding in my brain that I wasn't cognizant of. Wow. So the winter that I spent, or one of the winters that I spent working in a refugee camp in Lesbos, I just met the most phenomenal people. Middle Easterners and Arabs are so generous to the core of their being. Um, it, Eastern cultures, I think, are just, uh, they're they are so relational in a way that a lot of the West isn't. Um, There's such a high value for hospitality. So I remember sitting in camp uh, November, November, December of 2015, and it was freezing cold, and people were living in tents, and I would just go talk to people, anyone that spoke English, people right. from Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, and I would ask people, like, why are you fleeing now? What happened? And people would invite me into their tents and people would give me a glass of orange juice that they had in their tent or they would offer me a cigarette, um, which I didn't smoke. But just just that act of like, right. hey, I see you and I have something to offer to you, even though I'm coming there as like the helper and they're there as uh, the person to be helped. That dynamic really changed. And I realized wow, um, I have nothing to fear in these people. These are people like I'm a person. Um, I met a woman who was my age that was going to the uh, university in Damascus um, mm -hmm. when the Middle Eastern, like the Arab Spring was going on. And so I was asking her what that was like. And it was just really interesting to realize like, oh, I have written off an entire portion of the world as evil and dark and oppressive. Um, and I've never explored that. And in no way is that true. No, no people group, no faith tradition is purely evil. As a social worker, Right. I, be I'm, I believe in the strengths perspective. So I believe every individual group community has inherent dignity, value, and worth and has goodness within them. And so getting to spend nine months living among Middle Easterners and Muslims, I got to see so much of the beauty that I didn't realize I had written off in my mind. Right, right. That's amazing. And I really love how you put that into perspective. And one of the things is, um, if anybody that's not familiar with the Muslim faith is they definitely rely on one of the five pillars. And one of their pillars is about giving. Um, shout out to my brother Fahim, Fahim Ahmed, man, love that guy. That's one of my great friends, one of my great bros from since um, middle school. Um, just um, the way that how they continue to interact and move and just being able to give willingly is just um, so, it's so beautiful. And at the end of the day, I mean, of course, you know, believers, right? But it's an Abrahamic religion. And yeah. At the end, and we see that the same elements that exist between Judaism, Christianity, Islam, the core, and how that even started was right, like was there, like it's the yeah. same. It's just more of just the differentiation and then all that and all the sex and and you know all that crazy craziness. But I really love how you were able to even be vulnerable and honest to be able to talk about that embedded Islamophobia. Because, um, yeah, and I, that's so true because a lot of things have changed um, in terms of people's perspective when it when after 9-11 or after the, the other attack in New York that happened or about other things. It's just like so many craziness. And so now my other question for you is how has it been navigating life during, during this COVID-19 
Black Lives Matter, um, you know, some of the movement kind of been like risen by anarchists that are coming in to like change the narrative. But um, in you as a social worker living in empathy, how has that been processing that? And especially as a white woman. Yeah, I mean, I think as a white woman, my um, first response is I am listening to my black friends and I'm trying to take really good care and tend to my friends. Um, that are experiencing a level of collective trauma and grief that I can see, but I don't, I am not carrying that trauma in my body the way that um, you are as a black man, the way that so many um, both African-Americans and Africans throughout um, the world are experiencing right now. So practicing a lot of listening, uh, practicing lament. I, as a social worker, we take classes in oppression and we take uh, classes in exploitation. And so I also teach classes on those things. And so I have had years of time to read about anti-racism and to read about um, the ways that we as Americans have codified racism into the core of who we are as a country in our economy, um, in our power structures, in our schools, in our hospitals. Um, so I've also tried to use this season as a time to teach other white people and to pass um, good um, material onto other white people saying like, these are uh, black anti-racist educators that I've learned from. These are ways that I've practiced repentance. These are ways that I've practiced lament. Um, you know, these are, these are phenomenal black fiction writers to read. So when you're feeling overwhelmed by all the darkness, you can participate in black joy and you can uh, bear witness to black love. And also these are, when you're ready to do the work, um, the, these are some of the places to start to do all of the unlearning. Like I was unlearning um, Islamophobia, white people, and I would say um, black folks too, are constantly unlearning white supremacy because it's so ingrained in the fabric of who we are as Americans and as Westerners. Um, yeah, so I'd say both education education of my peers and then listening and trying to be led well uh, by black leaders that have the energy and space to lead and not pressuring um, my black friends that are just tired and traumatized and exhausted to um, give me things that they don't have to give. Yeah, that's true, that's true. But now another, <laughs> I mean, of course, um, we see this phenomenon, the Karen phenomenon. <laughs> it's comedic, but like, Man, like, fury, infuriating. Like, like you know, um, just the Karen phenomenon. Like um, I, I was actually listening to uh, this radio show. My dad and I were driving. We were driving, coming back um, from somewhere from the store or something, and we were listening about Karen and how people in, in Canada, but right now I'm currently in Canada, they were listening, talking about like, oh, what does it mean to be a Karen? Or like, oh man, where's what is Karen's doing and all this? Um, <laughs> like. How, how has it been being able to process this Karen, this escalation of this Karen meme that is, um, that is pointing out like, yo, um, white women are horrible. I, I mean, like, um, it's, and, and of course, you know, when you're looking back at history and then we see that the accusations and a lot of things of how um, typically some evil people have blamed stuff on so many others. Um, and I know that when people talk about that Karen thing, we talk about like this certain level of entitlement. I'm sorry, like this question is tough. But I no, think, no, like, I'm here for it. Yeah, well, we need to like have these conversations, like um, just like this entitlement that continues to be there. I I'm not saying that there's entitlement. This is just like uh, what some of the people have felt, but how has that been able to, um, with you being able to process that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's real. I think um, something I felt really frustrated with 
even before this current right, like this 2020 iteration of Black Lives Matter is um, feeling really frustrated with white feminism. I am a feminist, I am a white woman, and yet so much of um, white feminism historically has been really um, stuck in like the upper middle class. And it's just said like, the only thing that matters is gender and uh, white women having access to better jobs and more money. And um, as a social worker, I want, I desperately want to be an intersectional feminist and see like nobody, there aren't just like black people or white people or women. There are women with disabilities. There are women with disabilities that are native. There are women with disabilities that are native and you know, like all of these different intersecting identities. So I think in the last couple of years I've just been like, wow, I've, I've been pretty complicit in white feminism and it's benefited me and I haven't had to wake up to it. And so really actively since 2018, I've been trying to eject myself out of those spaces and into spaces uh, where the conversations are a lot more intersectional. So starting in 2018, I was like, I'm only gonna read authors um, with lived experiences that are different than mine. So I'm 2018, 2019, I just read authors that were um, BIPOC, that were from the LGBT community, that were immigrants, that were from the global South, that were from the global East. I realized like, my mind is just being so formed by this very single singular narrative. So when I look at the the Karen phenomenon, I think that's so much of what the problem is, is um, we, it's so easy as humans to think whatever my experience is, is the experience of everybody else. Um, I was listening to Code Switch and there was, I don't know what the statistic was. I think it was like, oh, the best. I think the statistic was like, 72% of white people aren't friends with a person of color. And I was like, damn, I mean, the implications of that are so right. serious. Right. And so on one hand, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, it, it makes sense if you're living in a bubble and someone is telling you life is different outside of the bubble. It's hard to make that connection. But I think particularly as white women in this moment and white men, we need to be actively diversifying who we're listening to in our entertainment, in our news, um, in the books that we're reading in school, in the classes I teach at Baylor, I'm really big on bringing in guest speakers because I know like as a straight woman, as a white woman, as a Christian woman, as a upper middle class woman, right. I have all of these privilege cards that are making my worldview pretty narrow and I want to expand both my worldview and that of my students and I can't do that from my own lived experience. Um, so for the Karens out there, we, 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 you got to get out of your all white wealthy circles if you have any chance of uh, being a better human. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. That, that, that is true. But then see, now there's another thing, though, that I'm also like, kind of like, it sucks, like, where, why... No, this is, and this is not me like saying this, but like I know that uh, the caveat, or no, not that's the caveat. Devil's advocate would be like, yeah, why? Sh why should they even bother? Like, why should yeah. that even bother? Because they can, they, they, they're like, hey, my life is good. That's on them. That's yeah. what they got to do. Why should I stop even doing this? Because, um, you know, I mean, of course, me as a black male, I do have privilege like no other. Like, you know, with ableism, but the way that I'm able to speak, my privilege, my just my connections, all that, like. That is yeah, that is present, and I think everybody does. But yeah, um, I, it's you know I think some people might question like why why should I why yeah. should I think outside of myself when I could um, to I guess so quite frankly to help or listen to somebody in somebody's life that I don't know. Yeah, I mean I think particularly for people um, 
of faith. I'm like, well, if you love God um, and you identify as a Christian, Jesus was a brown man. And so if you as a white woman want to love and follow and be submissive um, to the Lordship of Jesus, then you like you're under you're under brown leadership and you're under Middle Eastern leadership. Um, and so I think that's crucial. I think um, my husband just finished divinity school uh, in May and one of his professors did a like his PhD dissertation on the ways that children's Bibles illustrations differed throughout time. Right. I think so much of um, white supremacy and racism in the church is partly due to the whitewashing of Jesus. If I, Matthew and I will drive around town at Christmas and we'll be like so frustrated seeing all of these white nativity sets yeah. out on people's lawns. And I'm like, you don't, there are no, there is not a single white person in the entirety of scripture. Like there is not an American in scripture. There is not a white person. Um, so if you are a person of faith and you proclaim to follow a brown God, you should give a damn about black and brown people. Right. Oh my gosh. It was so funny. I'm not sure. Have you seen the meme of the, uh, of the Sphinx? And like the person, like everybody back in history school, um, like us in, uh, in like in elementary school, and it had an Egyptian sphinx with a white person's face. And no. It, oh my, oh, that it's so funny. I'll send it to you. Okay. Yeah. But it's so funny because all my friends and I, we were just laughing. We were like, yo, bro, like, um, I think it's, um, and I think that's really good that you're even saying that white supremacy does exist like that. I know most people are like, oh my gosh, um, what is white supremacy? Like, you know, most people think white supremacy is just like, oh, KKK, uh, whatever, whatever. But no, nah, it's honestly a supreme system that favors one body, like yeah. one race that makes them um, there. I know growing up, like even, hey, shout out to all y'all. Y'all being called out. Um, people back in high school or people back in, um, back in grade school, they used to say, I was always stuck in this in-between. Um, I had this podcast episode with my guy, Genesis Gray. We both relate because we both lived in suburban areas. Okay. Um, that I was told that I wasn't black enough because of the way I spoke. And and then I felt like, oh, I wasn't too, I wasn't able to be black enough with, to hang with the black kids. Yeah. And I wasn't white enough to hang with the white kids. Yeah. Even though they told they used to tell me that I wasn't each one. Um, and I think that was such a wild concept. And I'm like, man. And also, like, you know, me being somebody that's influenced by media, like, just even, like, the idea of media and how that's honestly programming. We're just going to be straight up. Yeah. Programming is indoctrination in a way. Uh, the most executives happen to be white, and they happen to be white yeah. males. Um, and shout out to all my white brothers and sisters. Like, I love y'all. But um, y'all just got to basically look at the facts. That representation was very little, low. Yeah. Low, low, yeah. low, low, low. Crazy low. And even then, like, um, and I know you – um, white women have still have still faced like oppression, like this idea of um, I think even at, for me in my eyes, media we see how um, there's always been like this submissive role that they've always had to play. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially like you know when we look at the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, but then now as we continue to go more into the uh, more millennial, whatever uh, Gen Z, but there's still like some of these writers that are creating this content they always mm -hmm. happen to be fall in love with a white uh well, not white, but fall in love with a person that's 10 years older than them fall in love with this like this was like i was talking with my friend emma ruth about it. it's like this is wild what yeah. what do we have to do in order to dismantle like what kind of things that we need to do in order to like yo let's write down the real stories y'all <laughs> ingrained with all this ideology and these thoughts like yo what is what's happening yes oh my gosh 
Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's uh, it's very very interesting, but it is what it is. Um, now, my question for you, Kelly, is when it comes to raising your children, um, how like how has that walk in motherhood been? And especially with your perspective and you fighting, um, you advocating and fighting for voices of children who have been exploited. And what, what does that look like? Well, I don't have any kids. Oh, you don't have um, kids? Okay, my so, bad. TBD. <laughs> yeah, we are. I mean, my husband and I have been married four, almost four, will be four years in December. And he's been in grad school the whole time. So our baby has been our cat Soren and has been getting uh, Matthew his degree. So that way we are the master's Palmer. Right, right. Okay, my bad, my bad then. No, you're great. Oh, well. But, um, but again, you, like you were the time working up there in the Middle East. And, you know, I remember watching your story and you're a big advocate of like sex trafficking and making sure kids are um, safe. Like how has that been? Um, and I know, and if people don't know, Waco has been a hub of sex trafficking, of, you know, people being displaced, of, um, and how has that journey been being able to walk through people in that life and be able to get that perspective? I don't think most people talk about it, or whenever they do try to talk about it, they shy, shy away from it. Yeah, trafficking is in a really interesting space in our cultural conversation right now. I've been actively in the anti-trafficking space since 2009. So it's been fascinating to watch the development over the last decade of, in 2009, I think the average person wasn't super aware of what human trafficking was, um, thought slavery was relegated to hundreds of years ago. Um, and the, the language has really changed a lot in the past um, decade. And I think one of the big misnomers with human trafficking is that it's predominantly sex trafficking and predominantly sex trafficking of children in Waco. Uh, so my job is I, I'm the anti-trafficking director for communities and schools, and I manage a $1.2 million federal grant on behalf of our local anti-trafficking coalition. Yeah, got some money. Um, <laughs> so our anti-trafficking coalition uh, is for our six county heart of Texas region. And locally, really what we see is a pretty high spike in uh, labor trafficking. And we see um, way more people that are Americans being trafficked, adults being trafficked um, than children. I think talking about the media, the media has really both glamorized and um, exaggerated what human trafficking looks like in the U.S. A lot of media sh like taken is like you're you're walking somewhere and then someone's like stealing you off the road. That really isn't happening. Um, almost at all. I'm sure, I'm sure that's happening in some places, but really the majority of trafficking um, is done by grooming. So it's done by someone that you know, someone within your own racial group or your own nationality. So there's already some level of buy-in and trust. And it's this slow relational build until you trust this trafficker and then the exploitation happens. Um, so one of the things that kind of frustrates me with trafficking is I think right now and particularly in conservative Christian spaces, there is this like rallying cry of we have to save the children. Um, and yes, no child. Yes, yes. And I'm like, yes, absolutely. But like, let's look at both globally and locally um, what sorts of things contribute to human trafficking. And it's things like poverty. It's things like lack of a living wage job. It's things like racism. It's these big systemic social issues that is creating an environment for vulnerability and for exploitation. Um, but often the people that are 
singing the rally cry for trafficking are also the people that are then blaming um, those that are experiencing racism, poverty. Um, so if you care about trafficking, care about these big social issues that contribute to environments of um, exploitation and vulnerability. Right, right, right. And that, and that is so true. And I think that um, if we want to be honest, how much have you seen the Epstein documentary? No, I I don't watch almost any one of my like self-care boundaries is I don't watch any entertainment where there's um, exploitation or like sexual violence because I inhale so much of it in my professional life. And, that, and that's and you know, and that's necessary. And I think that um, it was so crazy how a, a lot of people you, just the whole idea, like to even think that, um, you know, we, we got conspiracy theorists on you know, that we used to like, always used to say stuff about it back. Like, you can't be people like just the whole night even started was just like, why would somebody do that? And um, we actually used to have a president that was complicit that defended. Uh, um, oh, I, I don't know, like, like after, after watching that, like it made me feel a type of way to understand that, man, we actually had a former president of Baylor um, actually advocate and fight for um, somebody who used to do that. And I, and I think that, and again, that goes into your reason why that there needs to be so much like woman leadership and just so many different forms of leadership to be able to step in because that in itself is protection of white supremacy. Yeah. A clear example. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And also I think going back to media, we have, um, there's just rampant violence and sexualization of women in our media. And we know that between high school and your mid twenties, uh, your women's chances of being sexually assaulted or raped are one in three. And I cannot tell you how many women that I know personally that have been sexually assaulted and raped and looking at how pornography plays um, a role in violence against women, looking at our media just across the board, um, we sexualize girls at a really young age and the clothes that they wear and the way that we talk about them. Um, and so when we think about trafficking, it's like, okay, great. Are, but um, how are, how are you or I complicit in this? How are we making jokes? Um, how are we practicing consent in relationships, both um, sexual consent and just relational consent in general of honoring someone when they say no and honoring someone when they say yes. I, in college, I took a addictive behaviors class and I did a report on pornography. And uh, there was this large study that interviewed hundreds of men about what their takeaway was from porn. And one of the largest takeaways was when a woman says no, what she really means is yes and harder. And so the absolute danger of that of if porn is telling um men and also women but predominantly men um that no actually means yes we wonder why there's such rampant um sexual assault and rape on baylor's campus and on uh universities all across the country and all across the world yeah we're coming in hot y'all for the people uh, for the people in there um uh, welcome this is <laughs> just some like conversation with yeah, yeah, we just you know we just but this is i think and this is the whole point be able to chop it up and um bring that extension and transparency in this place where everybody can be involved and can just say what's up and say what's happening um man um kelly just that, this is some good stuff this is some good stuff and i love that the work that you're doing and um how do you take care of i, I think most people um uh, I was actually even thinking to myself, man, how do social workers take care of themselves? 
Um, the only the only basis of social work that I was able to understand and was again was shaped by media was when I wa- used to watch the movie Precious. I watched the movie Precious with my, with my and that's a great film, but um, but, incredibly uh, intense film too. <laughs> <laughs> intense. <laughs> I watched it when I was like thirteen. I was like, whoa, what the heck? Um, oh, yikes! But when we were talking, like. Um, you know, it's all about boundaries and self-care. Like, how do social workers and how do therapists take care of themselves? I think, you know, y'all are always the, the ones, you are the backbone of society in terms of being able to take care of other people's problems and issues and being able to listen and fight for them. But, like, how do you take care of yourself when you're hearing a lot of heavy stuff, a lot of light stuff, but, you know, how to continue to move and make sure that you're not getting too damn to the point where you don't even want to do it anymore? Oh, this has been the saga of my 20s. So I have, I'm 29. Um, I have burnt out to the point of needing to completely quit my job and take months off of work three times in my 20s. Oh, wow. And um, so it's something that I'm so passionate about. So I'm going to kind of hit this from a couple of different angles. Yeah, yeah, no, please, please, please. So in my classes, I talk all the time about self-care. If you read my course evaluations, you would think that I only teach classes on self-care because of how often everything comes up. Um, So one of the things that I care a lot about is building in resiliency uh, rhythms into your day-to-day life. So I start all of my classes with um, some sort of a mindfulness practice or meditation. So that might be sitting in class in silence for five minutes, or it might be doing yoga in our chairs. And I tell people, you know, I tell my predominantly female students like, hey, we're going to be doing yoga in class today. If you're wearing a skirt, you'll probably want to throw some bike shorts on underneath it. Or um, last last fall I was teaching in class, the new student experience class. And I found a um, like violin version of a Lizzo song. <laughs> I like listen to that and like had this moment. Um, but we as a society move at such an incredibly fast pace and a part of white supremacy uh, culture is valuing output um, at all costs. And so I really try to emulate to my students, like you are a person in my classroom before you are a student, before you are a social worker, I want to care for you as a person. That means caring for your body. That means caring for your mind. That means getting enough sleep. That means drinking enough water. So I talk about those basics a lot and I try to practice them a lot. Um, I think part of what contributed to my burnout historically was um, a pretty toxic theology that I loved, like Isaiah 61 and all of these verses that talk about like you going out and, um, you know, taking the chains off the captives and freeing the exchange of beauty for ashes. And um, that's not, I can play a role in that, but that's not my role. I'm not the savior of the universe. Right. Um, but part of what I ingrained from this evangelical theology was that I was supposed to burn myself out. And if I was burning myself out and if I was pouring myself out for the oppressed, that was how I was being a good Christian when instead I was just destroying my body um, on this altar of like, I take all of me. Um, So part of my healing process has been discovering a theology that's rooted in um, care and sacredness of my body. I think particularly in some charismatic spaces, it's like your body is evil and impure, but your mind and your soul are good. And so I've done a big reframe of like, my body is sacred. And I refer to my body with my pronoun. So my body is a her, my body is a she, and she has my best interests in mind. And she tells me when something is dangerous and she tells me when I'm tired and she tells me when I need a break. And so learning to really listen to my body and tune into her and then move from that space has been huge. I also am a 
massive proponent of therapy. I've oh, yeah. thousands bad. of dollars on trauma-informed therapy. I've done EMDR. I've done talk therapy. Um, I think most people existing in the 21st century have trauma, if not from um, their home, their you know, their family of origin, then from the environment. And so I think everybody that can afford it should use it. Something I tell my Baylor students is you're paying a ton of money and part of that money is going to Baylor Counseling Office. And so take advantage of the free therapy through the counseling center. It is the only time in your life you're going to have access to free therapy. So use it. Right. Um, I also do acupuncture, which sounds yes. like so woo-woo. Yes. There is a great, Kristen Horner is an acupuncturist in town and she, I have gotten like splitting migraines and I was having this like insane jaw pain because when I'm stressed, I like grind my teeth. And so my body was telling me like something is off. So now every couple of months I'll go lay in her office and she'll put tiny needles over my head, you know, over my head and body and I'll lay there and I'll uh, take care of myself, but really trying to honor my body and saying like when God created humanity, God said, this is good. And so trusting that my body is good and trusting that being a follower of Jesus, um, that Jesus showed us what it looks like to be fully human and to be fully human is to have needs and needs are okay. And needs aren't problematic. Like I previously believed them to be. Right, right, right. And I, and I think that's, yeah, that is so true. I think especially the idea of <laughs> prosperity gospel and the prosperity theology does yeah damage that just the idea of us taking care of ourselves i mean because in the word it does say yo but like yo your body's a temple like god like you know yeah. it holds the spirit but then at the same time how you're supposed to have a healthy spirit healthy mind healthy whatever without you taking care of the um, exterior which also um, helps alleviate to take care of the interior but i think you really made a good point about the idea of um, people going to therapy um and for us to um do that and i think our problem what something that needs to change is making therapy accessible I, Absolutely. I, um how how are you seeing um are you working with people that are actively working and making it trying to make it accessible and how would you like to see that change um in the next coming years whether you actively um within the civic um you know waco or also like on a grander political national level so a few people have been talking about health insurance in this country, you may have noticed. It's, right. you know, just a tiny little conversation some people <laughs> are having. And I think one of the uh, parts of that conversation that really needs to be centered more is having mental health care be a part of insurance. I have insurance through my job and um, the therapists, most uh, therapists in private practice don't take insurance because um, it's a nightmare on the therapist's hand and they often end up losing so much money. And so it's just not... Um, accessible to so many people in private practice. So I think we absolutely need to find ways um, with national insurance providers to make sure that mental health care is provided. Um, in the country right now, the number one provider of mental health services are our jails um, and our criminal justice system. And so we need to look at um, why that is, why we are policing people that have um, either diseases or that have really um, challenging mental health diagnoses um, that put them at risk for interfacing with law enforcement in ways that are incredibly dangerous to their health. So lots of things there. I know some great therapists in town that do a portion of their job pro bono. Also to become a therapist at the master's or the doctoral level is incredibly expensive. So it's such a hard line um, to balance for therapists of 
they need to be able to provide for themselves. They need to pay back loans, um, get into therapy because you want to help people. But often the people that you can afford to help are those that can pay um, full costs. So I don't know what the solutions are, but certainly um, lack of accessibility is a huge need. I think also um, looking at the stigma, whether it's a stigma along racial lines or along um, faith tradition lines or along nationality lines, um, we often believe that, you know, those with mental health problems are bad or they're unfaithful or like there's such a negativity associated with being a human and having needs. And so ways that faith leaders and politicians and influencers can both normalize therapy and um, place value on it, I think is incredibly helpful. I tell all my students like, I love therapy. This is great. I have a therapist. I want to normalize like you can be successful and still be a hurting human with wounds. These are not mutually exclusive categories. Right. Right. You know, that's definitely so true. And I know that especially around the church though, um, <laughs> it's a, such a funny relationship. It's like, Oh, you're sad or whatever. Pray. I know. Yeah. Like, I know I for joy. It's like, wait, what? No, like people are actually going through some stuff and they don't even know that they need to, I know, like, I know. Um, and this hasn't happened in my uh, life, but, I know friends who are colleagues at, um, especially African households, just the idea of talking to somebody is yeah. asinine. Like you talk, yeah. to, you talk to us, you don't know. <laughs> or, <laughs> or even the church is like, oh yeah, you just need to pray it away. Yeah. Pray it away. And um, I think that is so damaging because um, there's, there's not, there, yes, God is great. God is good. But now, now, thank you for this food. Right, right. <laughs> but now, when it comes to um, just looking at like some things, like faith without work, actions, faith without works is dead. Yeah. And I don't think, like, if you're not going to take care of yourself, and, and I think, and that's like, in, in the, uh, this, and I want to point it out, like, conservatism, or whatever, and I know pulling from your bootstraps or whatever, like, pull, pull from your bootstraps, walk away, you'll be fine, whatever. But um, that is, I think this is the reason why we're here. The reason why we're here at this moment right now in our country is because of so many of these stigmas and so many of these things um, not being accessible and just like these ideologies that are completely whack. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think not to harp on white supremacy, but it's 2020, <laughs> so let's do it. Um, but white supremacy is one of the tenets of white supremacy culture is black and white thinking. So things are good or things are bad. Things are slow or things are fast. Um, and I think we see so much white supremacy filtering into white Christianity and just Christianity in America at large. Um, where was I going with this? Mental health. Oh, 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 I lost it. Well, surely white supremacy interfaces with mental health. <laughs> oh, my oh gosh, I hate that. that. Um, do you think that the defunding, like, what are you, what are your thoughts about the defunding the police movement? Um, because in the, now, and that this is you, you know, um, going to be actively working with the city too. Like, um, I'm going to say right now, um, I, I don't think that we should defund the police per se. Um, I think it's more like how can we allocate these resources for, like, the police holds a lot of responsibility. I think too much responsibility. I'm in the point where they are serving as first responders, social workers, when they don't have to. And this escalation of them being put in vulnerable positions, like, um, like I mean, we shouldn't, of course, many of my black brothers and sisters should not be dead. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that could have been 
if we can have like some restructuring or rebalance or refiguring out like um just like reallocation of funding the correct way and now actually maybe in a new america one day we have an opportunity for us like yo we're gonna put therapists on the front line we're gonna put social workers on the front line we're gonna put things whatever but um what what is your thoughts about around surrounding this movement of defunding the police so I think in my reading, I think there's two separate camps. I think there's the police abolition camp and the police uh, defending the police camp. And I think people often kind of confuse the two of those. So often um, when we talk about defunding the police, we're not saying we're taking all of the money away from the police. Really defunding the police is what you're talking about. It's a reallocation of city funds, of state funds, of federal funds um, towards more community-based services. So in Waco, the I'm a budgets person. I love numbers. I love details. So I've spent a lot of time in the Waco city budget for this fiscal year that starts in October. Um, and then the past three years and the way Waco does our police budget is it's within the larger public safety, um, piece of the pie, if you will. So it's, I think it's animal control, uh, fire services, police services, but in Waco consistently public safety is the largest budget category year after year after year. Um, and the Waco city council just voted and agreed upon the budget for the next fiscal year. And in the midst of conversations all around the country for people to take funding away from police budgets, our city council voted to add another million and a half dollars to Waco PD for this coming year. Meanwhile, in Austin, um, Austin city council cut $150 million from their police budget. Whoa. And so they're all an hour and a half down the road. So two very different orientations with two understandably different city makeups and radically different size budgets. Um, but that's a conversation that really is, I'm not seeing elevated in Waco. And the way that that was justified at the city level was um, for community policing. Community policing is a big part of the conversation right now. And in Waco, we had community policing in the 80s and 90s. And so the city council um, uh, pushed forward this $1.5 million to Waco PD. And me as a social worker, that I was really surprised to see that being affirmed. I thought if anything, there would be money getting taken away from public safety and moved into other things. I'm really passionate about housing in Waco. We have huge housing issues, whether it's the affordability, property taxes, lack of emergency housing for trafficking victims, for domestic violence victims, for um, youth experiencing homelessness. And Waco spends less on housing than on any other budget category. So for the last three years, Waco has spent less than 1% of the city budget on community development and on housing. And to me, in a city with a housing crisis, that is incredibly disheartening. Um, so when I think of defunding the police, I want to see money go away from public safety where it can to fund really needed community resources like mental health services, like housing, like jobs with living wages. In Waco, um, our median income is $37,000 a year. And in my district, less or 44% of my neighbors make less than $25,000 a year. Like, I hear this. There are huge needs in the city and there are huge needs in cities all across the country. And so to me, the the policing conversation is let's reprioritize what we really value as a community. And perhaps if we spend more money on public services, on quality housing, on um, livable wage jobs, then we won't see this interface with law enforcement to the same degree that we see right now. Right, absolutely. And that's so true because I mean, quite frank, I was looking at watching, um, reading some statistics um, um, studying some just reports about the housing crisis, like there's more empty homes there than they are homeless people. 
Yeah. That that is <laughs> that is so asinine. There is more. Um, there's more. Be, there's more food being wasted. But approximately, there's about seven point two billion dollars worth of food being wasted every year, and that's just within restaurants alone. That's just in the restaurant industry. Imagine for all the like. Imagine just groceries. Groceries. Absolutely. All this like. There's an opportunity for us to be able to hopefully like yo like. Oh, gosh. No, I feel like, I mean, I, I was actually thinking about this today because I, so the refugee camp I worked in in Greece, it's the largest refugee camp in Europe right now. And it burnt down last night. Um, mm-hmm. Literally this, the largest refugee camp in Europe burnt down last night to a crisp and 12,000 refugees were displaced overnight. And I lived in lesbos for almost a year and what i know is it's a tourist island and so for most of the year there are all of these villas and there are all of these hotels that stay empty when the tourists aren't there and i was thinking like there are these twelve thousand refugees that were already living in rough dangerous unsanitary living situations in the camp that just lost their home um, that are now literally living on the streets of lesbos while hundreds if not thousands of beach villas and hotels sit empty so I was thinking that this morning. I was thinking like I was thinking about food too, the way that we waste food in restaurants, the way that we waste food at universities, the way that we waste foods in our homes. And it's it's crazy that it's not an it's not a lack of resources. It's not like there aren't enough places for these Middle Eastern or North African refugees to go throughout the entire world. It's not like there isn't enough food. It's just that um, those that have are power are like hoarding resources um, and are um, withholding humanity and are withholding compassion. Um, and that is just incredibly devastating to me. If, if it was, if it was a resource thing, that's one thing, but we know like there are houses in Waco and there are only, I think 200 on a given night, um, can chronically homeless, uh, residents in our city people, there are houses and there are apartments that are available if we have policies and funding to support that. And yet we push city money and we push city policies in other directions. Right. Ooh, this is my soapbox. Yeah, <laughs> that's so good. And now and now we're experiencing in Waco a resurgence of, uh, quite frank, gentrification. Absolutely. And, and like, and um, I think, you know, um, having friends and having community, being able to have friends within the East Waco, um, you know, and how it's, and also from the other spectrum, right? Like, like, oh my gosh, it's a brand new opportunity, entrepreneurship, woohoo! And yeah, yeah, yeah. hey, guys, like, yo, you come, you're crouching in my prop, like my area. I yeah. can't wait for this. And then, like, oh, flicks and fit, whatever, whatever. Shout out shipping to Win Games. Y'all are doing some dope work, awesome, great stuff. But um, just this displacement that is happening. Um, I, I, I don't know. Like, um, I'm not the most well versed because, of course, I don't live in Waco like that. Um, um, what type of solution or do you think needs to happen in order for us to continue to hopefully collaborate and be able to help unify the community rather than people being pushed out because of property being bought and, um, you know, um, you know, we got companies that are doing touring and from touring to churching and churching to more money in other people's pockets and, uh, Yo, say it, say it. Hey, yo, shout love, nothing but love. But, um, and this is me speaking with an entrepreneurish minor, being able to see this, but I'm like, yo, and what well, thoughts? 
Oh, I mean, so many thoughts. I think one of the things, um, again, that we, particularly as Christians and um, Westerners really struggle with is um, we have an insane sense of entitlement to the entire world. Um, So I think when we look at gentrification, whether it's along business lines or home lines, I think one way that we can practice being good neighbors is asking the question of like, am I welcome in this neighborhood? Like, am I who my neighbors want to have? Am I providing a business that is going to serve this immediate um, vicinity of residents? Or am I trying to bring new people into this area that's then going to uh, displace people? So I think one of the things that's promising on city council right now is Councilwoman Bearfield, who is the uh, District 1 Councilwoman, um, which is over Elm Avenue and East Waco. She is really protective of that space and really trying, as development comes in, really trying to bridge the gap between developers and residents to say, we want businesses here. We have closed um, shops that we'd love to see open and full of new life and providing services, but let's provide services and restaurants and grocery stores that our residents will frequent and not um, feel uncomfortable accessing. Right. I think housing wise too, I mean, Gentrification is um, inevitable with city growth in so many ways, but I think as a city, there are ways to um, provide policies that are protective of neighborhoods. I went to school in Boston and there's some really cool community development in suburbs around Boston where they have locked the rental prices. And so people can continue to live in these um, neighborhoods for decades, for like for years or for decades because the rent is frozen. So people aren't getting pushed out. Um, But I think it takes being proactive and not just reactive to not see particularly low income and black and brown communities being pushed out of generational homes. Right. And, oh man, and I'm just thinking about, um, as, um, I don't know, low key, if I'm going to be quite frank, I'm low key scared. Well, yeah, I'm actually nervous about after graduating, uh, because, um, I'm just looking at like, I I don't want to say like, but what else I put against me, but it, it's confusing. (laughs) Yeah. it's tough. And I'm just like, I mean, this is me speaking from my privilege. Like, holy moly, what about everybody behind me? Or, yeah. Or, or quote unquote behind me or like yeah. people would be considered like, you know, not good, not fit for society or anything. That That is such a, um, a little bit of uh, uh, a disheartening thing. I'm like, okay, man, how am I able to create, you know, community and what is the establishment? What does it mean to have community? What does it mean to be able to help allow people to have, be more equitable? How can we continue to just let people continue to thrive? Because personally, I believe that um, there's so much abundance and it's just yeah, like, there's like, a lot of greed. There's just been a lot of greed and a lot of people um, just not being so receptive of uh, just being again ego ethnocentrism and us being able to take over everything. Um, but that, anyway, that's actually another topic I want to dive into you about. But you know, you being a global person, you being able to travel, you being able to serve, um, um, and I was kind of going to, uh, with uh, uh, Christianity a bit, um, like the, the savior complex of missions, um, well. whatever. Um, you know, you were out there are serving and saving people. I'm not saving people, like out there serving and walking with people and be able to find that, um, build that. But what are your some of your thoughts about somehow some people look at, um, they feel like they have the savior complex whenever they do go on mission trips or anything of that nature. Because um, you firsthand have lived out serving and moving and living and where some people just go out for a week and think, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think, um, so in college I was like quintessential white savior, like catch me in Uganda with 10 Ugandan kids with me on either side, smiling and sending it back to reporters of like, look what I'm doing. So speak from experience of like, I, my, so much of my service um, in my early twenties was marked by white supremacy, was marked by colonialism, was marked by tons of good intention and zero critical thinking about, am I welcome in this community? Am I actually bringing anything valuable to the table? Or do I just think that because I am white and because I am American and because I have a good heart that I deserve to be here? Um, so gosh, I just think there's so much colonialism in um, Western and in American Christianity that hasn't been um, deconstructed enough outside of academic circles. I. Um, there are absolutely, these conversations are absolutely happening in academia, but I think just the American church at large isn't really wrestling with the way that we have pushed a white American Jesus down the throats of so many of our brothers and sisters, particularly in the global South. Um, so looking at that, uh, I think one of the ways that we can begin to become exposed to that is by listening to um, African leaders and African theologians um, it was so trendy and probably still is so trendy. I'm just not really in these circles anymore. When I was in college to go spend a summer in Uganda or Congo or Kenya and to take pictures with um, children, it's like, wow, I would never want someone to come into my neighborhood uninvited and grab my children and take a photo of it without my consent. Like what right. the hell is happening here? But I think we don't ask these questions or like, if my if I was living in poverty in Waco and a bunch of let's say Ugandans came to my country came to Waco and I had electricity needs and there are 15 uh, Ugandan high schoolers that have never done electricity I don't want them coming into my house to attempt to do electricity and yet we like go to other countries and we're like we don't have the skill sets but we've got big hearts so here <laughs> we are to like start an orphanage even though we know nothing about psychology and trauma and attachment or to build a wall. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know, that's kind of in a tangent, but um, looking at, I think a way to escape outside of saviorism is to ask the question of like, what do I bring to the table? Is what I bring to the table something that somebody else needs? Can I do this at home first? Um, if I am going into another community, whether it's from Uptown Waco to East Waco or Uptown Waco to Northern Uganda, am I under local leadership? Because local leadership will know what the issues are. In social work, we talk a lot about perceived need versus felt need. So I might perceive that your need is X, Y, and Z and come in to meet the day, but I haven't actually talked to you and asked you what you actually want to do. Uh, so I think we do way less harm when we ask people what their needs are and we have people be a part of the ownership as opposed to um, projecting what we think their needs are on them and then solve an issue that isn't even theirs to solve. Right, right. And the, uh, man, that is so... That's a good perspective because I don't know, I'm on a mission trip too and I'm like, okay, like, I, I don't know. Um, and you don't necessarily see, I, I know for a fact, like a big, big fact, you don't, most the majority of the time people are going on mission trips, they're not people of color. Because one, they can't afford the mission trip. Um, so we're not gonna, are we gonna talk about that? Yo. Um, and plus they too, it's like, why we're too busy trying to save ourselves or trying to save others when we can't even save ourselves. 
man, that is. Yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so much with missions. I think, um, I mean, at this point, I'm like really against short-term missions. I think that it's a waste of money. I think that often it's poverty porn. I think that's often seeped in colonialism. I'm like, if you want to help a, I keep using Uganda because I spent a summer in there. Like if you want to help a community in Northern Uganda, great, find a local organization with trusted leadership and spend all of that money that, or send all that money you would have spent on plane tickets and hotels and tourism that you're absolutely going to do while you're there. Right. And think what they could do with that $20,000 as opposed to sending 15 American high schoolers to go paint a building for four days. Right, right. But I, I think we we want we want the picture on social media. We want the accolades that what we're doing is good work. Um, but I think it's critically important that we ask the question, like, who is this serving? Is this serving my need or is this actually serving the community's need? And if it's serving my needs, how can I eject myself out of the situation to actually be a part of social change that promotes good and not just my ego? Yeah. Talk about that. Talk about that. Woo, this is good. This is, this is really good, y'all, man. I, tell you, I just want to say you're very wise. You're so wise. Oh, Lots of failures, lots of mistakes along the way. Yeah, but I think, um, but I think we do need those lots of failures because I mean, I've learned experience, but also, um, I think the the one thing that I just love just hearing from your perspective too is just that how how active you have been, like you, like I mean, again, activist, <laughs> but you really have been active in terms of continuing to engage and to learn and to flop and to fail and. Um, you're doing, you are doing great work. Um, so now these are a little bit of my bigger questions now. I mean, well, every question I can ask is big, but um, down towards the end of the podcast, um, what are what are three things that you would tell to your 20-year-old hmm, self? Think about nine years back. Three things that you would tell to your 20-year-old self. Uh, I think really silly. I would tell myself you're going to get married. <laughs> 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 so real. I was at a what? You didn't think you were gonna get married? No, I mean I was at like I was at a tiny Christian school and I was just like, oh my god, Jesus, please send me a husband. <laughs> so be like, chill. Like he's coming, he's hot, he's tall, he's smart, he loves God. You're gonna be okay. I just hang out with your guy friend. You need to talk about that though. Our school, this school puts too much pressure on us, like kids, to be able to get married. Like, what, twenty-one? Like, yo, that's a that's a breed for like. How are you gonna bring a human when you're like still like trying to figure things out? And then after yeah. that, you're like, what's that little human? And like, your brain isn't fully developed. You, I mean, college is such a time of like trying on different versions of yourself. You're trying to figure out who you are outside of your family, who you are as someone in the workforce, who you are in your faith, who you are in your politics. Um, so yeah, I would for sure say like, Kel, chill. You're going to get married. Like have fun, hang out with your girlfriends, hang out with your guy friends, but like seriously chill. Your husband is coming. <laughs> so that's so lame, but my 20 year old self would be thrilled to know that. Um, I would also say, uh, slow down. I think I left college feeling so called and I felt such a sense of like, this is who I am. I know what I'm doing. Um, God has a special call on my life. And I don't think any of that is wrong, but I left college like sprinting mm -hmm. and I, 
lost a lot on the way. Like I, I lost myself. I lost my health at various points. Um, so I would just say like, slow down. Like you, you don't have to be the savior of the world. You don't have to have your dream job at 22, at 25, at 29, at 30. Um, life is a marathon. Um, but I think I just left college. Like I have to prove myself immediately and there's nothing to prove to anyone. Um, and then my last thing, hmm. I think my last thing is I would say God is a woman. Oh. <laughs> I would say, um, so much of college for me was, um, connecting with like God as Abba, God as father. And that was really healing for me. Um, but I also took in a shit ton of sexism by going to a small private Christian school. And um, I remember distinctly thinking my junior year of college, like um, my life would be so much better and so much easier if I was born a man. Like I could go on runs by myself every day. I, I was a big runner in college. Like I, I could go on runs and never be afraid of like being attacked, which also my whiteness. I mean, I, that, that is a whole other conversation, but yeah. So, um, the last couple of years in finding theology that honors, um, the God who is outside of gender. And so I know when you, um, interviewed Jocelyn, she was talking about like, um, God and feminine pronouns. And that has been so healing to me to think of like God as mom, God as mama, God as mother. Um, so much of my sexism that I've experienced from the church really feels like white male God. Christina Cleveland is a black theologian that I am obsessed with. And she talks about um, like black female Jesus versus black male God and thinking about God as this like voluptuous, safe black woman has been incredibly nurturing for me, both as a woman and as a white woman um, to be under like black spiritual leadership. Um, so I'd, I'd say like, Kelly, God is a woman. What does it look like to explore the sacred feminine, um, to explore God as um, divine? Because that means that I'm divine too. I think so much of the sexism was that like uh, being female is like being a second class Christian and knowing like, no, who I am is sacred, who I am is good. There's power in my femininity, just like there's power in my masculinity. And if I am reflected and made in God's image, then God is the God as she is, God as he is, God as they is, God is outside of gender. I, and I think that's such a, that's such a, I, that's a good point because I've been learning about that too, in terms of, I mean, victors, most people, most of the victors and most of the people who have written scripture or history have been male dominated, right? And um, you just think about examples. I think about Joan of Arc, right? Like, you know, she was called by God to literally lead a whole army the king was like what the heck okay sure let's just send this out this girl out here and after that but like she was called and boom she killed it she crushed it and um and, and i think that's so true to think that we put a such a weird scope of god like man like man just man uh, my my uh professor from uh, christian heritage really broke that concept because i'm like okay if God is so divine and he created, well, well, my bad. If God was so divine, well, actually, no, Yahweh, y'all use the right term. Yahweh was so divine. And there's a um, there's a divine femininity and divine masculinity. And we, all, we have to realize it's present in both of us. Yeah. Uh, we both, everybody has both feminine and masculine traits and that are existent. 
Some like to tap into more than others. Some don't because they don't, can't even fathom the fact. And that's just another whole question about just how uh, patriarchy has really just seeped into this idea. Um, but that's such a that's a great point. And with that, like something that one of uh, my husband's professors from grad school, her name is uh, Dr. Will Gaffney, and she is a womanist scholar. So looking at scripture from a black female perspective, and she's like, I'm a biblical literalist. Like I call God as mother and God as she, because there are feminine pronouns for the divine throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Like this, we, we think of God as uh, male because men throughout history have continued to change the translation from the feminine uh, Hebrew translation into a singular male pronoun. And so that has been really freeing for me of like, I want to revere scripture. Um, scripture has been so weaponized against nearly every group, but recognizing that like in the original text um, in Genesis one, it's she hovered over the waters. Um, it's a plural feminine. So it's like she as in they hovered over um, the waters and discovering that that's always been in the scripture has just felt like such a um, gift and a surprise to my faith and has honestly kept me in the faith tradition in a way that I think I probably would have opted out um, had I continued to inhale a lot of the um, white male God yeah. garbage. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that can be a little damaging, but hey, but we love all people. But that's the most important thing. I think most people gotta realize they gotta see people for who they are. Um, shout out, shout out for that. Um, <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm just being like this. I'm just gonna keep it like, you gotta keep it casual though. You know what I mean? Like, yo, oh yeah, right. this conversation has been so casual. <laughs> Oh man, there's people still in here. I'm actually surprised that people are still watching. I think they would. Uh, so if I've been canceled by you, it's okay because, you, yeah, it, it is what it is. <laughs> you and I are just we're just speaking our truth, and you know maybe a year from now, five years from now, we'll say, oh my gosh, Kelly and Janog in 2020, what Jabro? <laughs> but right now, right. we're doing the best we can with what we know. Oh man, that is amazing. My last question for you is. What do you want your legacy to be? Hmm. One of, so one of my like sister, sisters and mentors in Waco is Emily Mills, who is the, uh, one of the co-founders of Jesus at Love. And she hosted an event called the time for love early this year. And we all took some time to just kind of think and meditate on the year. And there are these beautiful white roses in a vase that I watercolored. And I remember being so struck by both the thorns on the roses and the like light fragility of the um, of the petals. And I think that's what I want to be. I want to be both tender and fierce. I want to be both protective and accessible. I want to carry fire that warms people and burns um, the the things that need to be burnt away. And existing in that both and space, um, I think would be the legacy that I hope to leave. That's so good. Favorite concept of the show, favorite subject segment, speak life. You already know. Um, shout out to James. There's life and death in the power of the tongue. So just going to say here, um, Kelly, this is our first time interacting and talking. But um, first of all, shout out to you for actually like going back to the catalog and actually listening and actually enjoying the content. Like, Oh, it's so good. It's so good. What you're doing. Okay, wait. I, I want to go after you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there's days so I'm like. Man, this is even worth doing it, but hey, if nobody listens, zero views, a million views, 
people are being moved. If one person is moved, awesome. But first and foremost, I just want to say, man, thank you so much for um, your courage and your you living out the gospel um, mm -hmm. in such a way. I, I think everybody is so, such a unique way, but you literally going out and serving people and listening to people, being an advocate for the voiceless, being able to continue to, um, you are the leader of the new school. And it's just such an honor, such a blessing to um, to now meet you and be able to advocate and, and support for all that you're doing. Um, thank you for just showing love and vulnerability and honesty and for being able to continue to be authentic in who you are. And you showing people that, yeah, I can think that. And yeah, I am a woman, so what? I'm gonna run. Oh yeah, you know what? We're breaking it down and we're doing all this thing and you have transformed and changed people's lives. Um, it's a blessing to know you, and I'm just like, man, this is dope. This is dope. Who you are, and who God created you to be, is so amazing. And um, man, awesome. Incredible. Oh. Thank you for educating. Thank you for. I receive it. Thank you, and thank thank you for what you're doing on this podcast. I loved. I probably listened to three or four um, episodes the other day while I was working and just felt so encouraged hearing all the perspectives. And I love that you end your podcast asking people about their legacy and inviting people to reflect on who they want to be and honoring people for their gifts in the world. So to honor you, I think you're doing phenomenal work. I think you are 10 times um, the activist and just the human that I was in college. So I'm stoked to see where you're at at 29 and just the massive oh, I'm impact. 29. I'm 21. No, I know. I'm, I'm stoked to see where you're, where you're at Ooh. at 29. Yeah. Oh, oh, shoot, man. Like, like who knows? I mean, I, I love watching the way that you like seek out um, people for your podcast and are not afraid to reach out to people that have hundreds of thousands or millions of um, followers and you've had a TED talk. I just, I think your courage, your ability, your willingness to show up, to fail, those are incredible traits and you are a kick-ass human and I'm glad Baylor has you and I'm glad Waco has you and I don't think you should be afraid for what's to come after college. I think you are going to have really cool doors open to you that are going to be life-giving and are going to be energizing and you're going to be around people um, that love you and are thrilled to be in community with you. So I'm stoked to watch uh, what is going to be in store for you the next nine years of your 20s. Yeah, man. Oh, wow. I received that. That is, um, I received that. That's good. That filled me up. I enjoyed that. Um, anyway, y'all, hope you guys enjoyed this session of Campus Cuts. If you've been moved, woo, woo. that's good. And we are out. Man. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure you go watch the podcast on YouTube if you haven't. And make sure you go follow us on IG Campus Cuts Pod and follow us on each and every social media network. Thank you so much for the help. Hopefully that we can get up back to where we were and hope you have a blessed day. Continue to share it, like it, love it, subscribe, and enjoy your time.